Welcome to Bible Study. This is Nick Rita, your host, and very happy to be with you again today. Thank you for tuning in with us, and uh, I believe you'll enjoy this uh, Bible study, and uh, I would like to just introduce the panel for today. I would like to welcome uh, Marek Yantos. Uh, we haven't got you, Marek, for a while, but good to have you back with us. Lovely to be Yeah. Thank you, Will, also, to joining us. Always a pleasure. Thank you, Nick. Helen, good to have you with us also. Thank you so much. It's exciting to study the scriptures, isn't it? And Brenton, thank you for being part of this discussion today. That's fine, Nick. It's uh, lovely to share God's word. Len is our facilitator for uh, today. And thank you, Len, uh, so much for putting together this study. Thank you for joining the program. Thank you, Nick. And hello, listeners. And Helen, I would like to just hand it over to you. Please take us through. Well, listeners, over the last two and a half months, we've been studying about sharing with others and about the goodness of God and how he relates to mankind. And we've considered the methods of Christ and of the apostles. There is no question that of the utmost importance is the message about how sinners can be saved through the unselfish sacrifice made by God in the flesh, Jesus, who took the penalty of sin, that's death, on our behalf. But that's not all. Jesus came the first time, but he promised to come again, what we call the second coming. And you can read that for yourself in John chapter 14, verses 1 to 3. And he promised to take his people home with him to heaven. This will be the culmination of his sacrifice, the culmination of the Bible prophecies, and the culmination of the task of spreading the gospel message. And this is a message worth sharing, and we want to share it with you today. But before we do, Helen's going to lead us in prayer. Thank you, Helen. Thank you, Len. Let's pray. Loving Heavenly Father, it is a delight to come together to praise you, to worship you, and to get to know you more. Pray that you will open hearts today. I pray that, Father, the words that we say will be your words, that that we will be impressed to share. We want to share these words because there is a message that you have for the world and for us that is worth sharing. So, Lord, help us to present this in the way that you want us to. May the words be your words and not ours, the interpretation, your, your interpretation and not ours. And may the needs of the people be be fed through the Holy Spirit, dear Lord. Bless us now, we pray in your name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Helen. Well, Brenton, the Apostle Peter had something to say about the message to the generation, to this generation. Would you like to just share what he said? Sure. He said this, therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. If you do these things, you will never stumble. He's called this message present truth, but in order to understand exactly what he's talking about, um, it's the truth that the Christians of that era would have understood about Christ. They would have understood about his death, his burial, his resurrection, his ascension. They would have understood that he was coming again. But I believe primarily, if you look at Second Peter chapter 1, we need to refer back to verse 4 as well. 
It says this, by which you also have been given to us exceeding great and precious promises, that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Simply put, Len, I believe that the generation that then lived, that Second Peter were written to, that they were to have Christ's character in them so that they are able to escape the natural corruption of the world. Interestingly enough, that is exactly what's required today in 2020. So it's present. It was present, present truth yes. then, and it's present truth now. Helen? Yeah, I read a statement that said that present truth is an expression that, that Peter uses to define truth that is both relevant and urgent for that generation. That's right. Yes. Peter made that statement. By the way, in some versions of the Bible, it doesn't use that terminology. No. But I think it's a very appropriate uh, term. But um, how certain can we be that what Peter was saying was right? Will, could you share with us on this? Yes. I. Peter says uh, in Second Peter 1, verses 16 to 20, we do not follow cunningly devised fables when we have made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received from God the Father uh, honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. And so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which you do well to take heed as a light that shines in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation, for prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. Peter was is clearly here confirming that what Jesus proclaimed is absolute truth. Right. He uh, used the term, he said, we were eyewitnesses. But um, eyewitnesses of what, Merrick? I, I absolutely love the fact that when Peter addresses that very question, he says, for he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, this is my son whom I love with whom I am well pleased. And there Peter says, we ourselves heard this voice that came from heaven when we were with him on that sacred mountain. I mean, that gives us tremendous confidence when Peter can uh, say in a very strong, positive manner, we were there, we heard the voice. Uh, it sort of reminds me of the testimony of, of John when he writes in First John, uh, first chapter and first verse. He says, that which was from the being we heard, with which we saw with our eyes, which we have looked at with our, and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. How wonderful when you can have the testimony of individuals who actually heard the voice, saw Christ, touched him, were with him, uh, I uh, I love that testimony. I, I love the power that it brings to the uh, to the message that Peter is is presenting to us here. Yes, Brenton. 
what's uh, um, adding to what Marika said, um, basically the comment that was made by God the Father at this time is identical word for word to the affirmation that Christ received when he came up out of the River Jordan after being baptised. So you had affirmation at the beginning of his ministry, you had affirmation at near the end of his ministry here, and furthermore, Peter is not only reflecting on what he saw on the holy mountain, so to speak, I think he's backing that up from what Will read by saying that even if some of you may disbelieve my personal testimony, I was there, I know what I saw, I know what I heard, but you know today, Len, even in our society, people will disbelieve you even when you tell them what you've actually seen and heard. He is now saying we have a more sure word of prophecy. In other words, the undergirding foundation to all of this is not just what I've seen and heard. It's the fact that prophecy has predicted all of this right through. And that is an absolutely firm and impregnable foundation to build on. Mm. Well, we're actually moving on to the next thing. But I wanted to say this. In academic circles, the best source of information is not information that's been passed down one to another to another to another. It's the primary source, which is the best source. Yes. And here Peter proclaims himself, I was there. You can believe me because I was there. I heard it. I heard it at the baptism of Jesus. I heard the, uh, the voice of God on the Mount of Transfiguration. I was there. So you better believe it. And Paul also mentioned something else. But, Merrick, would you like to read the next two verses there? And mm -hmm. a, an additional thing to certify or guarantee that the message that Peter is presenting is mm. true. Mm. And, and, and uh, in verse 19 onwards, uh, Peter states, and, and our testimony is basically affirmed by the word of the prophets. So it's made certain so that you will do well to pay attention to it as to a light shining in a dark place until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. Above all, you must understand that no prophecy of Scripture came about by the prophet's own interpretation, for prophecy never had its origin in the will of man, but man spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. So... In addition to his personal witness, uh, Peter adds to say there is prophecy to show that this message that we are presenting as present truth is correct. Is there any reason why anyone should doubt biblical prophecy, Helen? Um, yeah, I was just going to add to that. Yes, and say there is no reason why we should doubt. Number one, it comes from God. But even if people doubt God, you only have to go and look at some of the other prophecies. And we've studied Daniel and Revelation in depth. And the prophecy of the um, the image, you know, with the head of gold, etc. When I first came to understand the Bible and I first heard of that prophecy, I thought, wow, that's just amazing. So I went home and I checked it all out with history and everything. It is 100% accurate you know, right down to the dates and the people and everything. And that gave me the um, the foundation for believing that all the prophecy that God sends to us is accurate, 100%, and it's truth. And there's only one prophecy from Daniel that we're still waiting on, and that, of course, is the second coming. 
And I believe if all the rest have come, that's sure to come too. Well, that's a pretty good recommendation, isn't it? But Nostradamus's prophecies, which are very vague, by the way, I think about 4% of them have come true. And now somebody who has a success rate of 4%, would you put a lot of confidence in such a prophet? Not if you line it up with someone who has 100%, absolutely not. <laughs> and the Bible, of course, is 100%. So you can uh, have confidence that what it says is right. Brenton, I know you've got something special to share. The message of eternal significance for the first century was that Christ had come. The Father's love was revealed through the sacrifice of Christ on the cross. Although the wages of sin is death, through Christ eternal life has been secured for all. It is our choice whether by faith we will receive it. This message of salvation in Jesus will never be out of date. It is present truth for every generation. Yes. doesn't matter if it was in 1500, 1200, 500 AD. It's still valid. And if you look around the world or examine the statistics, there are many, many, many people, millions of people, who put their trust and confidence in the message of present truth. The books of Daniel and Revelation are the great prophetic books of the Bible. Will, what is the focus of the book of Revelation? No doubt to me, Len, it's uh, talking about uh, Jesus coming again. And of course, because we are living in those days, special relevance to us is that uh, it comments on the conditions in the last days. But let me read the text it's Revelation 1 verse 7. Behold, he is coming with clouds, and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him. And all the tri tribes of the earth will mourn because of him. And then he ends uh, with the request, even so, amen. And I think, uh, Len and panel and listener, I think that's the thing that burns in our hearts. We could also say, amen, come Lord Jesus. That is the center the central message of the book of Daniel and Revelation. Yes, and um, it's interesting that the message for these times is found in Revelation chapter 14, the same as John chapter 14, where Jesus announced he is coming again. Merrick, would you be so kind as to read Revelation chapter 14, verses 6 through to 14. Right. Then I saw another angel flying in midair, and he had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth, to every nation, tribe, language, and people. He said in a loud voice, Fear God and give him glory, because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made heavens, earth, the sea, and the springs of water. A second angel followed and said, Fall on Fallen is Babylon the great, which made all the nations drink the maddening wine of her adulteries. A third angel followed them and said in a loud voice, If anyone worships the beast and his image and receives his mark on the forehead or on the hand, he too will drink of the wine of God's fury, which has been poured full strength into the cup of his wrath. He will be tormented with burning sulfur in the presence of the holy angels and of the Lamb. 
and the smoke of their torment rises forever and ever. There is no rest day or night for those who worship the beast and his image, or for anyone who receives the mark of his name. This calls for patient endurance on the part of the saints, those who obey God's commandments and remain faithful to Jesus. Then I heard a voice from heaven say, Write, Blessed are the dead who die in the Lord from now on. Yes, says the Spirit, they will rest from their labor, for their deeds will follow them. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like the Son of Man, with a crown of gold in his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Yes, thank you very much. Now, there are actually three messages in that uh, section that Marek read. Helen, can you identify those three messages? I think this is an astounding section. It's known as, as we have mentioned, the three angels' messages. And the first one that Merrick read out, it's talking about us worshipping God the Creator. And that's very, very important because creation speaks of our value in God's side. It speaks of our worth to him, and we're not alone in the universe. You know, we're not some speck of cosmic dust. God created us. He fashioned us. He made us. We didn't involve, and we're not a genetic accident. You know, creation is at the heart of all true worship. And I'm glad that this first angel talks about worshipping God as the creator. And, of course, the Sabbath speaks of a creator's care and a redeemer's love as well. There's a lot in this, so I'm trying to abbreviate as much as possible. The second angel talks about Babylon, the system of false worship. And if we were to look into history, we would see that Babylon was actually the name of both an evil city and an immoral empire, a world centre for idol worship. And they ransacked Jerusalem. They carried the people into captivity. And, you know, just as Babylon was the Jews' worst enemy at that time of the early Christians, John probably wasn't game to sort of speak too much against Rome and um, he actually applied the name Babylon to the enemy of God's people. Instead of saying Rome, he said Babylon and by extension to all God's enemies at all times. So here we have the scripture saying, you know, Babylon is fallen and that's good news, isn't it? It means a system of false worship will collapse. And the third one, the consequence of being involved in the systems of false worship is the punishment and the destruction, you know, at the end of time. But at the same token, this is also a message of hope, Len, because we know that finally the final outcome will be that sin will be forever destroyed. And from from our uh, pers- from the perspective of the Seventh-day Adventist Church, it's interesting that the this passage of scripture, the three angels' message, has always been upheld as present truth. Yes, uh, the calling of making people aware, calling their attention to the fact that God is the Creator, that there is a coming judgment, the everlasting gospel. These are the major focal points of what Adventism is all about. Yes. And so today when we talk of present truth, the three angels' message is very much one of those core beliefs of the church and uh, and very much the proclamation that the church has been called to make to the world. Yes, thank you for that. Now I want to throw a question to you from left field. I hope you're ready for this. The first angel had... A, uh, it says, and had the eternal gospel to proclaim to those who live on the earth. So 
Okay, we've got no problem with that. The eternal gospel, uh, how God will deal with mankind. And then what did that actual the angel say? He said, fear God and give him glory because the hour of his judgment has come. Worship him who made the heavens, the earth, the sea, and the springs of water. Now, here's my question. How is the gospel related to creation? Well, you know, God, God brought things into existence by his word. That is a revelation of tremendous power. We came into existence as a result of, of, of God's design, God's intent. And it is only through what God does for, for us that we can be saved, we can be restored, we can be offered salvation. There is nothing that we can ever do of ourselves. And, uh, and, and in this, I, I find that message reinforced. The God who created us is the God who restores us, is the God who redeems us by the same power. Yes. I think also some people are very confused about where sin actually began on this world. And as you consider creation and know the creation story and what happened straight afterwards, there is an explanation for sin. The same God who created us is the same God who forgives us and saves us. Well, Brenton, who will be saved? Well, according to Revelation 14.12, it says, uh, Here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. And it first of all says, Here is the patience of the saints. Uh, Marek read, I think, from what he was reading, uh, the endurance. Another word for it is endurance. In answering the question, who then will be saved, you have to contrast what you're reading in chapter 14, verse 12, with those who were described in chapter 13, who are those who worship the beast and his image. In chapter 13, you have the words tell, uh, cause. Uh, There's um, a um, significant aspect of coercion and force involved here. In chapter 14, Len, it's almost like (laughs) when you read verse 12, here is the patience of the saints, here are they that keep the commandments of God and the faith of Jesus. It's almost as though God is saying, here is exhibit A. Here is exhibit A. In chapter 13, all the world virtually worships the beast in his image. But my people, here they are. And they have the faith of Jesus. They keep the commandments of God. They are the clarifying characteristics. They don't only have faith in Jesus. I believe they have the faith of Jesus. Jesus said, I do nothing that my father has not told me to do. I believe that God is calling us today to be as faithful to him as they were, as Jesus was to God in saying, I do nothing that my father has not bidden me. I believe that's the level, if you wish, that God is calling us to to aspire to, Len. His last day saints, I believe, will be those who will be faithful to him under all and every circumstance. I'm really glad you mentioned not just the faith of Jesus, but faith in Jesus. Many people just Uh, limit that to faith in Jesus. Yes. But it's talking, the verse is faith of Jesus. And Jesus was faithful even to the point of death. And this is what God requires of his people. There are a lot of people, I believe, who regard salvation as a walk in the park, meaning that there's not a great deal of personal effort or commitment involved. 
But these, this text that you just read suggests that there is a, a matter of being determined and to be true and faithful under all circumstances. Len, it's, it's kind of interesting here that living at a time when people deny the role of Christ, of God as creator, people attending to adopting the, the perspective of evolution and so forth, we are reminded here so very clearly that God is the creator. We are to fear God, accept him, revere God as the one who made us, as, as the one who brought us into existence. You know, we're living at a time when the economies of the world are really under phenomenal pressure like they never have been before. And one of the things that we fail to acknowledge is the fact that God provided, God created, God owns all that we possess. Man has become so materialistic, so focused on gathering wealth, that all of a sudden, as a result of a major crisis as we are seeing now, we are brought to face with the reality that all that we see and possess belongs to God. It is not ours. And the COVID crisis and the economic fallout from that reminds us of that. And I think we, in proclaiming this message, need to make that very clear to people. It's God who created, God who made, God who sustains. It's God who owns it all. Yes, Brenton. Just uh, quickly, uh, Len, uh, the uh, first words of chapter 6, fear, uh, verse 6, fear God, the Greek word is phobio, and it means absolute loyalty and surrender. And that backs up, I think, very much what we've been saying as a panel. One of these present time messages, of course, and it's the, what I would say, the big message, is that Jesus is coming. So when is he coming, Will? Behold, I come quickly, he says. My reward is with me to give every man according to his work. Is a text that comes to mind from Revelation 22, verse 12. <clears throat> Living in the end of time, these, this is something that will happen in our lifetime, the Lord willing. And uh, it's an alert or an alarm for us to be ready. So the question is around this word quickly. My mother died in the hope that Jesus would come before she died. And I know of other people who had that same experience, and there have probably been people who lived hundreds of years ago who were expecting Jesus to come, but it didn't happen. So does God have a different perspective of time? Or perhaps could it mean that when he comes, he's not going to dawdle. When the decision is made, he will come quickly won't be taking years and years and years to come. He will come quickly. So what do you think, panel? Len, I read a couple of statements, if I could share them with you. Uh, These statements kind of really, really uh, hone in on this point. One of them comes from eight volume of testimonies. It says, transgression has almost reached its limit. Confusion fills the world and a great terror is soon to come upon human beings. The end is very near. We know the truth should be preparing. We know who the truth should be preparing for what is soon to break upon the world as an overwhelming surprise. There is an element of surprise here. But then in another place, I read this. We are standing on the threshold of the crisis of the ages. In quick succession, the judgments of God will follow one another. Fire and flood 
and earthquake with war and bloodshed. You know, we, we are at a time when we are experiencing a pause in everything that we have been doing on account of the COVID crisis. But at the same time, as we focus on that crisis, we are reminded of the soon coming by things like the incredible fires that people have been experiencing over the last 12 months and longer, floods and earthquakes. And then after that, things will come so rapidly that the world will be overcome by an overwhelming surprise. I think we are there somewhere at that very, very time, and we need to be very focused and mindful of that. Yes. In fact, um, Helen, you have something to say, and then Will, and then I'll come back to you, Helen. Thank you. You were saying about coming suddenly, and in thinking about that, you know, Christ's coming will be swift and it will be sudden, but and there won't be any opportunity for last-minute um, repentance or bargaining. You know, it will be swift, it will come, and it will come at the right time too, by the way, uh, which reminds me of a text in Matthew 24, 35 and 42. And uh, it says here, heaven and earth will disappear, but my words will never disappear. And 42 says, so you too must keep watch, for you don't know what day your Lord is coming. We don't know what day. And and I'm glad we don't know what day, Len. You know, some people say, oh, I wish I knew, I wish I knew. But I think if we knew the precise date, we might get a little bit lazy in our worship of God or in sharing the message, you know. And so I believe there's a message there. Watch, we need to be ready now. Yes, coming. Yes. Yes. yes, we need to be prepared all the time. Absolutely. Will, what did you want to share? Then the fact that people 200 years ago were expecting Jesus to come, I believe, um, just link up with what Marek has said, uh, clearly the signs show that things just can't go on as they were before. But God is, is honest and, and uh, true to his word. It makes me think of Second uh, Peter chapter 3, verse 9, which says, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. He is patient with you. And here is the key, not wanting anyone to perish, but that everyone should come to repentance. Verse 10 says, But the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. What I see in this text is that God promises he will come. There seems to be a delay of maybe decades and hundreds of years because he's not willing to come before they're ready. He's wanting as many to be saved as possible. And I think that that love postpones the coming, as it were, humanly speaking. I don't know if that's right, but that's just my feeling. Well, I guess you would say that the first coming of Jesus was like a farmer planting the seed, and the second coming is more like a harvest. You've got something you'd like to share with us on that one, Will? It's the symbolism of the harvest is uh, used throughout the Bible to describe Christ's return. Uh, And uh, in Revelation 14, the harvest of the ripe grain represents uh, the redemption of the righteous, and the harvest of overripe grapes depicts the destruction of the wicked. Um, Revelation 14, verses 6 to 12, contains an urgent last-day message to prepare men and women for earth's final harvest. And it's this very harvest and the second coming of which we have been speaking. All of us need to be ready. 
so that we are ripened grain. Thank you, Will. Eric, would you like to actually read those verses, Revelation 14, verses 14 to 20? So our listeners know we're not making this up. I looked, and there before me was a white cloud, and seated on the cloud was one like a son of man, with a crown of gold on his head and a sharp sickle in his hand. Then another angel came out of the temple and called in a loud voice to him who was sitting on the cloud, Take your sickle and reap, because the time to reap has come, for the harvest of the earth is ripe. So he who was seated on the cloud swung his sickle over the earth, and the earth was harvested. Another angel came out of the temple in heaven, and he too had a sharp sickle. Still another angel who had charge of the fire came from the altar and called in a loud voice to him who had the sharp sickle, Take your sharp sickle and gather the clusters of grapes from the earth's vine, because its grapes are ripe. The angel swung his sickle on the earth, gathered his grapes, and threw them into the great winepress of God's wrath. They were trampled in the winepress outside of the city, and the blood flowed out of the press, rising as high as the horse's bridles for a distance of 1,600 stadia. Mm. So in the book of Matthew, Jesus presents a judgment scene, and judgment can consist of two things. It can mean the trial, or it can mean when the judgment is actually executed. And Jesus pronounced there that some people would be likened to sheep and others, the unsaved, like goats. But here in Revelation, it talks about a harvest. A harvest of God's righteous people is likened to a harvest of grain, and the other one of the unrighteous is likened to a harvest of grapes that are dead ripe and are going to be squashed. The question is, which side do you want to be on? Which side do you want to be on, Eric? It's wonderful. I, I only hope that we can be part of that very first harvest, the harvest of grain, uh, not the harvest of the overripe grain, grapes. Uh, yeah. I, I don't think there's anything quite as distasteful as overripe grapes that are starting to go off. Uh, I sure want to be a part of that harvest grain, the first harvest. And I can see heads nodding, and I join you in that. We want to be saved. We don't want Christ's sacrifice to be a waste of time. We want to be there with him so he can present us to the Father and say, Here, Father, these are those for whom I gave my life. You know, environmental scientists' predictions and the Bible both agree that the world will come to an end. The Bible teaches that this will occur when Christ returns. For many years, mainline Protestants have focused on Christ and his sacrifice, but have neglected to warn people that there will be a time of harvest, the end of the world. Dear listeners, don't you, like the foolish virgins in the parable of the ten virgins, be caught out unprepared. Revelation chapter 14, which we're spending time with this morning, verses 6 to 12, the three angels' messages are messages or prophecy that we should all take notice of. Now, Brendan, what advice does Peter give regarding how we should relate to the certainty of Christ's second coming? Well, Peter said in Second uh, Peter chapter 1 and verse 10, which we touched on briefly, Len, earlier on, uh, we're to make our calling and election sure. How do we do that? 
Simply put, we grow spiritually. It's interesting that not only Peter, but also Paul uh, frequently refers to this. And I'm going to read something from Paul just to give you an idea of how Paul viewed the importance of sound teaching. But concerning the times and the seasons, brethren, you have no need that I should write to you. For you yourselves know perfectly well that the day of the Lord so comes as a thief in the night. For when they say peace and safety, then sudden destruction comes upon them, as labour pains upon a pregnant woman, and they shall not escape. But you, brethren, are not in darkness, so that this day should overtake you as a thief. You are all sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night nor of the darkness. There's a strong emphasis in what Paul is saying here, which backs up what Peter is saying, that sound doctrine, sound doctrine, I believe, has a number of different um, aspects to it, Len. Firstly, it focuses us, I believe, on Christ and his sacrifice. Secondly, I believe it focuses us on the need for holy living in the times in which we live. As Marek said earlier on, under COVID-19, uh, I was talking to a couple of ministers on um, the Ministers Fraternal down here in Mount Gambier yesterday, and one of them was saying that one of his church members, he was talking to a fellow minister in Melbourne, one of his church members was actually found by his wife. He's 30 years of age. He was found by his wife on the floor of the bathroom sobbing hysterically, and he said, I just can't take it anymore. Now, what Paul is saying to us, I believe, in First Thessalonians 5, he says that um, the day of the Lord is going to come as a surprise to many. But then he says in verse 4, But you are sons of light and sons of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. And he says these things shouldn't take us unawares. When Peter talks about present truth, present truth always involves, I believe, a sense of readiness for whenever the Lord returns, it also involves a sense of, um, shall we say, perfecting our characters. In other words, receiving Christ's righteousness into our life so that our characters more and more reflect Christ and therefore the disparity between the average person and the average worldview and the worldview of those who are Christ's should become more and more distinct. Yes. Now, back in Revelation chapter 14, verse 7, the um, announcement by the first angel, one of the expressions he says was to fear God. What do you understand that to mean, Helen? Okay, we heard um, Brenton mention before that it, uh, the Greek New Testament word translated fear in verse 7 as phobio. When I thought of that, I thought, oh, does that mean we've all got phobias or whatever? But the sense in which it is used here is not being afraid of God. It is a sense of reverence, awe and respect. Conveys a thought of absolute loyalty to God and full surrender to his will. It's an attitude of mind that is God-centered rather than self-centered. But with your permission, I'd like to join it in with the second part, fear God and give glory to him, because to me they are one. And you, and you can notice the contrast there, Len. Fearing God speaks of our attitudes. Giving glory to God speaks of our actions. Fearing God has to do with what we think. Giving glory to God has to do with what we do. Fearing God deals with the inner commitment to make God the centre of our lives. 
And giving glory to God deals with how our inner convictions translate into a lifestyle that uh, that honors God in everything we do. That includes to obey God. To obey, yes. Yes, to obey God and to put. You love God, you willingly obey Him. Yes, a friend of mine used to say, "Make God first, best, and last in everything." Yes. Now, we have an Old Testament passage in the book of Ecclesiastes. In fact, it's the last part of the book, chapter 12, verses 13 and 14, that it talks about how mankind should live. Will, would you be prepared to read that and perhaps explain how that relates to the message of the second coming of Jesus that we're discussing today? Yes, it's interesting that the word fearing God appears way back in uh, Ecclesiastes and it's speaking about uh, what is best for mankind. It says um, in Ecclesiastes 12 verses 13 and 14, now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments for this is the duty of all mankind. Verse 14, for God will bring every deed into judgment, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. What we've just read seems to be a synopsis or a summary of the counsel in Revelation 14, that there is a coming judgment and that uh, fearing God or obeying him or respecting his uh, teachings must be part of a people that will be ready before uh, he comes. So in your assessment, Will, how is the general population faring in relation to this? A Lennon panel to me, I think everyone will agree, there seems to be a, a reckless disregard today, not only for civil authority, and we've seen um, um, the statements against and the action against authorities in this world, but uh, even more so amongst a large percentage of the population, of the requirements of God's law and his word. His word and his law doesn't have priority, I believe, in, uh, in society today. Yes, and some people would go further than that and say, well, this is one of the reasons why all these calamities are happening. And Marek referred to this earlier with the floods and fires and COVID-19 and all this kind of stuff. An interesting comment there. It says, in an age of moral irresponsibility, when millions of people feel that they are accountable to no one but themselves, and that's present-day humanism, this judgment hour message reminds us that we are responsible for our actions. There is a relationship between an attitude of reverence for God, obedience to God, and the judgment. Obedience is the fruit of a saving relationship with Jesus, Only his righteousness is good enough to pass the judgment, and in his righteousness we are secure. Through his righteousness we live to glorify his name in all that we do. Thank you very much. That's um, a very powerful statement that we should take notice of. Now, we're actually talking about our current times, which we could refer to as the last days, and it was mentioned earlier but we just revisit that, Brenton. What aspect of God is of special importance in these last days? 
Well, the aspect of God that's of special importance is the fact that he is the creator. That's the obvious conclusion of Revelation 14, 7, Genesis 2, verses 1 to 3, and Exodus 20, verses 8 to 11. He is the creator. But I want to take it one step further, Len. In Genesis 1, the very last verse, at the end of the sixth day, God says, Behold, he saw all that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And at the start of chapter 2, the first thing God does is rest from all his work. In other words, he was 100% satisfied with the creation of this world, with the creation of man, and with the creation of everything that he'd created. The obvious answer is that he's the creator, but an equally important answer, I believe, is that the Sabbath provides a rest. Each week when the Sabbath comes around, Len, we rest in a completed work. We don't rest in an ongoing work in the sense that creation is still going on. That's all been done. Because Christ died on the cross and rose again and rested in the tomb on the Sabbath, it's very clear that the aspect of rest that God offers us today is the same as what was offered back there. Now, I find that particularly significant because we live in a highly stressed society, as we all know, and COVID-19 has certainly done nothing to alleviate that stress. If anything, it's added to it very significantly, and I think we'll find there'll be many, many mental health issues that are going to flow from COVID-19 if and when it's eventually over. But in the rest that is being offered here, the special aspect of God in these last days, he is offering us rest. He's saying, come to me, rest yourselves in me as your creator and your redeemer. I will alleviate your stress. I will take away your cares if you will trust me. But in order to do that, you need to give yourself completely to me. You need to be fully surrendered to me. Yes, I, I believe that's very important. Um, I like what you said. Uh, we live in a day of high stress. I think so. probably a second reason why this message of fearing God and worshipping him as creator is very important in these times. And I believe that's because of the widespread teaching of evolution. There are other uh, teachings where God has been completely left out of the pictures. Evolution is one, communism is another. But because evolution is such a widespread teaching, and personally I think it's a ridiculous teaching, there'd probably be plenty of people who would disagree with me, and I think I'm happy enough to defend my position. Evolution is taught so much that there is no God, and the admonition given in Revelation 14 verses 6 and 7, is worship God. Because what do people worship apart from God? Themselves. Themselves or their possessions or things like that. All of those are unable to give everlasting and permanent satisfaction. Helen, why is the fact that we are created by God important? Well, as um, I mentioned before, the fact that God created us and he created us for a purpose, actually, but he made human beings in his own image and we're accountable with what we do with our lives, accountable to him. There's a text and I can't quite remember what it was, but it comes to mind, whatever we eat or drink or whatever we do, do all to the honour and glory of God. 
It's in Corinthians, Helen. Thank you. I knew somebody would be able to jump in with that. Yeah. And so because because he has created us, we are we are accountable to him, Len, in everything that we do and all that we do and all that we think, all that we take in. And it, that also, by the way, includes you were talking about the Sabbath rest before Brenton was bringing it up. And, you know, to me, the true Sabbath rest is a rest of grace. I look at it like a, a rest of grace, grace in the loving arms of the one who created us, you know, one who redeemed us, um, the one who's coming again for us. Uh, I think it's just a beautiful gift God has given us of the Sabbath day and the fact that he has created it and we can enjoy it and, we, you know, we have that accountability to him to keep it as the commandment says. You know, it um, says remember to keep the Sabbath, keep it holy. Yeah. Six days shalt thou labor and thou shalt work, but the seventh day is the Sabbath of the Lord thy God. And he gives us that in Exodus. He tells us what we should be doing with it. And he tells us not to restrict us, not to take away our freedom, but to give us a better life and to give us that rest of grace that we so desperately need. You know, it gives us, in fact, the three angels' messages to me. It presents the, the gospel in an end time setting that meets the heart of most of the postmodern generation or the needs of the postmodern generation. You know, when you think about it, people are desperate for belonging, identity, community, purpose, fairness, justice, compassion, you know, loneliness. There are so many things out there which keeping ourselves accountable to God fills that need, especially the Sabbath. Points to God as our creator. In fact, interestingly in... um Another place where the commandments are given, it points out the deliverance given by God. But the thing is, because God created us, we are accountable to him. Some people think they're accountable to nobody. But in actual fact, everybody is accountable with what they do with their lives. Yes, Marek? Yeah, I, it's it's interesting, Len, that uh, we should emphasize not only the fact that he created us, but he created everything that exists around us, everything that we possess. Somehow we've come to take that for granted. We basically feel that we have the right to exploit the environment, exploit the seas and everything that they contain, the resources under the earth and what have you, as if it all belonged to us. But the emphasis here is that it all belongs to God. We were purely given the privilege of being stewards, and we have mismanaged that, and that is evident everywhere. And as a result of our mismanagement, we know that all of creation groans, suffers. It also waits for that time when God will take control. Yes, well, we've seen some events here in Australia over the last few years of where creation is groaning because of what man has done. Well, in the uh, three angels' messages is given a very powerful warning. And what is that warning? We've looked at most of the positive things, but the warning is a negative type thing where we should take notice of will. Would you like to share that with us? Yes, in summary, it's saying um, that unfortunately uh, the truth of God has become corrupted over the centuries. The church has adopted several practices and teachings which were not taught by the, uh, the apostles and the early church. 
And it, this is an extremely dangerous moral climate. And in view of this, God's calling for his people to come out of the apostate system. Uh, and I think that we all should identify what that system is and follow, try to follow the inaugural truth as it was taught in the New Testament church. But let me read the warning of God himself in Revelation 18, verses 1 to 4, speaking about this uh, apostate system. It says, After this I saw another angel coming down from heaven. He had great authority, and the earth was illuminated by his splendor. With a mighty voice he shouted, Fallen, fallen is Babylon the great. This is the apostate system. She has become a dwelling for demons and a haunt for every impure spirit, a haunt for every unclean bird, and a haunt for every unclean and detestable animal. All the nations have drunk the maddening wine of her adulteries. The kings of the earth committed adultery with her, and the merchants of the earth grew rich from her extensive luxuries. But then this is the warning comes in verse 4 from God. He says, Then I heard another voice from heaven say, Come out of her, my people, so that you will not share in her sins, so that you will not receive any of her plagues. So the gospel is beautiful as it is, and the expectation of Jesus coming is, as you've said, Len, not all just a positive message, but uh, a warning message as well, that there will be a, a corruptive influence in the days in which we live just before Jesus comes. And God wants us to separate ourselves from that uh, negative influence or the destruction of our souls. Yes, um, I've heard it expressed in another way that we should be in the world, but not of the world. In other words, we can't help it that we live here in the world, but we shouldn't take on the superficial values that the world seems to have. Well, listeners, I just want to give a summary of the message that we have shared with you today. The first thing is that things will not continue on in this world as they are forever. And we're seeing some of those things changing right now. Secondly, there will be an end when Christ comes again. Thirdly, we need to be prepared and not be caught up in counterfeit worship and worldly interests. Fourthly, those who are faithful to God will be saved. And then fifthly, and this is on the opposite side of the coin, those who are unfaithful and unaccepting are doomed to punishment and eternal death. So we've shared the message of life and death with you today, but the choice has to be yours. And this is the choice, be saved or be damned. And so I hope that you make the same choice that each of us on the panel have already made, that is to be on God's side and doing God's will. And Helen, you've got some last important thoughts to share. Thank you, Len. Yes. Um, you know, and Jesus said, Behold, I'm coming quickly. Blessed is he who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. And that's in Revelation. Jesus' final appeal to all of us is to respond to his love, to accept his grace, and to follow his truth, to be ready for his soon return. 
Thank you, Helen. Well, that winds up our study for today. Thank you for joining us. And before we leave, Merrick, would you be so kind as to pray for us and our listeners? Heavenly Father, today as we have looked and contemplated the message of Revelation chapter 14, we are mindful of the fact that you are the author of the book. You personally presented the message of this book to John the Revelator. Mm. Lord, it's a book of warning. It's a book of hope. We know that the book concludes with a wonderful message that you will be victorious, that you will take those that place their trust in you to a wonderful kingdom that you have prepared where there will be no more suffering, there will be no more pain. Lord, there will be no more death. We look forward to that time. But you have also given us a special task. Just as John the Revelator, crying out in the wilderness, said, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is near, you have asked us to proclaim the message which is so clearly presented in Revelation chapter 14, proclaiming you as the creator, as our maker, as the God who provides for all of our needs, the one before whom we will also stand in judgment. And that time of judgment has come. It's not future, it has come. And so we pray that you will empower us to be able to take this message to the world and turn them towards you, call them to repent so that they may worship you as the one who made heaven and earth, the sea and the springs of waters. You have given us the Sabbath that is to remind us of this fact. May we share that message with others. May this present truth be what we feel enabled and called to proclaim as part of that last proclamation as the commission that you have given to us. Lord, during these difficult times when we see that this world is struggling, struggling in terms of social issues, struggling in terms of uh, environmental issues, moral issues, economic issues, we have a strong and certain word that we can trust. We know that your promises are as real and uh, as sure as they have ever been. And so we claim those promises and we place our trust in you and we give you honor and glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, thank you, listeners, for joining us today. I hope that you've been enlightened and helped by this Bible study. And thank you, panel, for sharing your thoughts and your time that our listeners might understand the Word of God a little better. So until next time, we uh, wish you God's blessings. And as Nick usually says, keep walking in the footsteps of Jesus. God bless you all.